But Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity and privilege. I, I don't assume that all of us have the same understanding or all of us uh, followers of you, but I understand that all of us know what it is to suffer, as we've shared, but all of us know what it is to be human and to and to want a journey in the best way possible with the best gifting and strength that we can have to serve you and to serve others. So just help us work through that tonight, we pray. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, um, a young woman who was a friend of my children asked me to marry her as a celebrant. And uh, I was a little bit surprised because while I kind of knew her, I, I didn't know there was any sort of any Christian background or experience. And, and we'd been involved with her parents on you know, one or two occasions socially, and I never had that sense at all. So as she came and saw me and, and sat down, I said to her, you know, let's, you know, I'm very pleased to be the one who's the celebrant for your marriage, but, but why me? Because if I do the marriage, it's got to have the word God in it, and it's got to have some sort of Christian component in it. And, you know, why would you want me to do the marriage? And she said, well, basically, Ross, she said, I am a believer in God and Jesus. But I don't go to church at all and nor do my parents. But she said, can I explain to you why? I said, yeah, sure, far away. She said, oh, a number of years ago, our families, extended families, you know, all the aunts and uncles and cousins and whatever, gathered for one of those family occasions. And it was really joyous and it was a really great day. But by the end of the day, you know, the kids are in the pool and all sorts of things are happening and, and you know, family members are going, you know, here and there and barbecuing and whatever. But in all of that process, one of my cousins drowned. And it just ripped apart all of our families, apart from the massive grief that came upon uh, that young person's parents. And he said, we've never been back to church since. My parents don't go, I don't go. We've just never been back to church since. We just cannot understand how that event happened to our family amongst good people. But she said, having said that, there's still something there of faith and belief in God and Jesus that I want a Christian wedding. In fact, I told my fiancé, if I don't have one, we're not getting married. And she did, and it took him a while to come around to it. And she said, by the way, my parents, you know, this is say a couple of years ago, listen to you regularly on the radio when you're on, because that was kind of their connection and their kind of church, but they couldn't face going back publicly in that environment. And as we talked, I shared with her and she asked me, do I understand that? And I said to her, well, look, I do. But one thing we need to understand, that this is just not a problem for me who's a follower of Jesus. This is a universal problem. How do we explain in our world suffering and pain amongst people that are basically good? How do we explain that kind of environment? And if we look, for example, at all sorts of other explanations which we need to look at and take a time. If we look at, for example, at atheism is one possible explanation of what goes on. I mean, I was listening to a um, former Prime Minister of Australia who is an atheist, and he was explaining his own life. And he was saying, as far as my life is concerned, he said, in the evolution process, I'm just half a grain of sand upon the beach. 
That's all I am. Half a grain of sand upon the beach. And the only answer that we have to suffering and pain in the world is education and knowledge and by that process making our world better. But in the end, my life is basically nothing. I'm half a grain of sand upon the beach. I thought, how's that an answer? And then I look at uh, some of my dear uh, Eastern religion followers and friends and they will tell me it's about karma. I mean, what's happening to me in suffering is what's happening to me because of my past life. And uh, if I'm in a particular situation, that's my past life catching up with me. That's my just desserts. And if it's happening to somebody else who's a victim or a situation, that's part of their past life karma that's catching up with them. And that's an explanation that they seek to give for suffering. Nothing I have any control over. It's over a past life that I don't even know or acknowledge or even accept. That past life is organising my suffering and who I am. And then many of my new spirituality friends, and I have quite a few, you know, I'm, I'm uh, spiritual but not religious. Many of them would say that it's just simply because I've scripted it. Whatever happens to me, I script. I set the agenda as I think so it is. And you might know Shirley MacLaine, she wrote in her book Going Within, she talks about the fact that she was being mugged on the street of New York and she's saying, why am I being mugged? I must have scripted that. I must have wanted that. So how do I change that suffering that's happening to me? I changed the script. I determined I was no longer going to be mugged and the mugger ran away. So if I'm suffering or whatever's happening to him, to me, it's because I've scripted that experience for myself, either in my present life or my past life. And it's about changing the scripts because I am deity, I am divinity and I control my own existence. Uh, one of my closest friends is very much part of this movement and uh, later in life he was uh, having a child and uh, he rang me and said, oh mate, guess what? I'm, I'm, we're having a child. And I said, mate, you know, you, this is new. You never said this before. He said, no, 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 it's not planned. Then he stopped and said, oh, but I must have scripted it somewhere, but I just don't recognize it. I mean, the genuine attempts to try to understand why we live in a world where there's suffering and pain and angst. Genuine attempts. What I want to share with us tonight briefly is how does the Bible explain that? And uh, I talked to uh, this young woman about what the Bible says about suffering. And we shared the basic biblical context that what the Bible says about suffering is that God created the world good. He created the world as it ought to be. He created the world as a place where there would be no suffering. But in that world, he created you and I. And because he was a God of love, he created us in his image. And creating us in his image meant he created us as people who could love and reach out and, and extend our love to others. He created us as people who are creative, responsible, but he also created us with a freedom. And in creating us with that freedom, because he didn't want robots, he wanted people who were free to choose about how they would live their life and what their responses would be. In creating us with that freedom, he created us with the potential to make choices and to live life that were contrary to what he and his plans were. 
And as a consequence of that freedom, we made choices that set this world astray. We made choices through our eternal great-great-great-grandfathers. We made choices for ourselves. We make choices that set us aside from God's boundaries, God's way, and the consequences of that is the world gets screwed up, the world gets stuffed up, and suffering is a consequence of that. So in a real sense, you don't blame God. You blame us for making the choices and the decisions which we make. And I think all of us understand that we do make choices throughout our life that are choices that are not uh, constructive, choices that are not God-given, choices that are not uh, of, of value. And those choices in themselves are the way the world has now been placed, a world where there's chaos at times and suffering and pain takes place. And I did explain too that in our world, in my worldview, we can't dismiss that there is a presence and sense of evil called the devil who also interplays and interacts to seek to bring out pain and angst in our world. You know, there's a, um, a much philosophical debate about whether a good uh, God who is all-powerful and all-loving uh, could be a God who created a world that allows for suffering. Could a good, all-powerful, all-loving God allow for a world in which there is suffering? And this understanding of God creating us as we are, a God of freedom, has been seen by most philosophers to answer that question. Yeah, a good, all-powerful, loving God could make a world, and understandably makes a world, where his creatures have freedom and responsibility to make the choices that they make, and that is a loving thing to do, knowing that in the end, if they make the wrong choices, which they probably will, we'll end up with a world of chaos and suffering, but that's very consistent with a loving God. But if he was to stop that as a powerful God, he'd have to stop the world. And one day he will. But in his love and generosity and mercy, he's allowed us to be and live and exist. But for being loving and powerful is not inconsistent with creating a world where there's freedom to choose and freedom of choice. So for many in that world, those questions have been answered that the Christian worldview does make sense. A loving God, a caring God, a powerful God who creates a world where those in his image have choices and choices have consequences. But as we'll see, it's not a God who's just leaving us to our own domain. It's a God who's trying to do more about that than we are, who's trying to rectify that. I think in all of this process too, we've got to recognise that there's another side of suffering And the Bible makes that very clear. That when we talk about suffering, we've got to always remember there's another side. And as I point out here, and uh, I actually shared with this young lady, because we did talk about the other side of suffering in her own life. You read, for example, in 1 Peter 1, 7, that pain can produce growth, maturity, and inner strength. That's another side of suffering. Uh, When I was um, about to leave home to come up tonight, I got a phone call from... uh, Kel Willis, who's the chair of my board, the Mauling board. And he said, mate, can we take some time to chat tonight? And I said, look, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm off to speak at the centre. And he said, oh, what are you speaking on? And I said, I'm speaking on suffering. God said, oh, he said, fantastic. Why didn't they invite me? And I kind of thought, well, Kel, you're welcome. I said, why? 
he said, well, I love talking about this topic. Not that it's not a really painful and serious topic, but through my suffering and my family's suffering, we have found maturity and strength and we have found the compassion of God and the mercy of God that I don't think we would have experienced in any other way. And I said, tell me about it, Kel. And it's public knowledge, so I'm not handing on anything that people don't know. Uh, his daughter, a number of years ago, became a very serious heroin addict. And they didn't know if there was any hope or future for her. Her addiction was so strong. Well, through that suffering and pain and the mercy and grace of God, she was released from that addiction and now runs a substantial rehabilitation centre for young women who are heroin addicts, changing lives of many young women, support of uh, significant people as she does this ministry. And as Kel says, he's chair of the board, the whole family's involved, we're working with our daughter, we're working with heroin addicts. Um, it's just, it's changed our family. It's bringing strength and maturity and ministry. Now, no one's wishing anybody to be a heroin addict. But the point of it is there's another side of suffering. Often in our suffering, we find things about ourselves and opportunity and changes that completely transforms who we are and how we minister. And there's another side of suffering which I think most of us know, and that is that we learn more from the valleys of life than we do from the heights of life. I think if I took a poll here, most of us would accept that, no matter how young or old we are. A few years ago, I was taken back to uh, Adelaide to speak. And uh, when I was there, the hosts uh, took me down to uh, the major park in Adelaide uh, because they were aware that many years ago, I mean, before the flood, I think, um, when I was a 16-year-old, for whatever reason that I can't even recall, I just fled from home. And so for some time, not an immense period of time, but for some significant time, my bed was that park. My blanket was newspapers. And as a 16-year-old, I slept in that park. And so when I'm there looking at this park with these guys, you know, the, the, the story kept on coming back to me that what happened while I'm sleeping in this park and don't seem to have much future, I had no money. And, uh, you know, certain choices were coming my way which weren't very pleasant, but how was I going to survive as a 16-year-old with no source? And I had a kind of a Christian background that one day two young women came by who were reasonably attractive, I must admit, and but they invited me to church. And for some reason I was drawn to that invitation. And I remember them caring for me, feeding me, laughing with me, asking me appropriate questions, supporting me. I remember the minister, whatever, sharing with me. And I remember by their love and concern and their gentle input in my life, I ran from that building where they met, throwing away certain stuff and making arrangements for my life to go back to where I came from. And as I'm standing in that park, it, it, it dawned on me that who I am now and how I see life, that God is in the park. God is just not within the four walls of the church. God is there ministering beyond the four walls, and that's where we need to be. goes back to that experience as a 16-year-old. Does that make sense? That shaped me. So I could never again be part or never would be part of a church or a ministry or a situation that didn't allow me 
to minister beyond that. And I think that's why I did radio for 12 years or did whatever. That that experience of suffering was actually transformative and planted in me an understanding of how I'm going to live my life. So we need to be cautious because suffering, the valleys of life, often teach us more than the heights of life. We learn more from those experiences. So suffering can produce maturity and growth. It can inform us and help us to grow. I also like the uh, verse Romans 8, 38, that reminds us that all things work together for good for those who love God. That's another thing we need to remember about suffering. I was just uh, reading about someone who was talking about suffering and was reminding me as I was reading this, it's, you know, in some sense, this is like, you know, you take your grandchildren or your child to the doctor or the hospital. You know they're going to get a mighty injection or needle or they're going to have that surgery. You see the fear in the child's eyes as they can't make sense of it. You see the trust in their eyes but that great fear. But you know that pain, that suffering, that jab, that surgery is eventually going to lead to good health, (coughs) restoration and recovery. But they don't understand that at the time but their trust is in that. And so it is for us. Romans 8 says, even though we don't understand the immensity of what's taking place, if we trust in God, he will only produce good from that situation. Even in death, there's only resurrection for Jesus. And so that's another side of suffering we need to bear in mind that while we can't understand it, God uses it for good. Uh, I was listening to Tim Costello who was answering some questions about the, he's the leader of World Vision about church and abuse and whatever and you know we need to own that that's some terrible stuff but he took the time appropriately to remind those who are doing the questioning of him that something like 90% of all charities in Australia were, be, were began by Christians Something like 90% of all charities in Australia. People try to reverse suffering. People try to minister to people who know angst. People suffering emotionally and physically and whatever. 90% of all charities beginning by people who had that Christian background and heritage. In other words, God is at work in a world that's suffering. He created a world that was good. In his love and mercy towards us, he gave us freedom. And even though together, collectively, we've made choices, it sometimes produces incredibly unfair results. But together, collectively, we've made those choices. God still through his people, God still through his people, is the major one who's reaching out and trying to produce change and goodness and health. But as we'll see in a few moments, God is doing more. I was just chatting to someone beforehand about a new book that is out uh, and it's called God is Good for You. Um, I think it's a lovely title, which I thought about it. And it's written by Greg Sheridan, who some of you would know is a senior journalist, uh, foreign correspondent for The Australian. It's an unusual book for an Australian journalist, but God is Good for You, it's well worth a read. And Greg says this, if we remove God with respect to suffering, we don't solve any problem. We've removed one of the best ways of helping to deal with the problem. But we don't remove any problem. Even evil is still there, so is suffering. If we remove God, we don't solve any problem. You've still got 
and my half a grain of sand on the beach? This is just karma. We remove one of the best ways of helping to deal with the problem. We remove our hope, but we don't remove any problem. Suffering is still there. So my encouragement to us tonight is not just to think, okay, God made a world, he gave us freedom, he gave us free choice, that's consistent with the world of suffering and and God is out there and I see the other side of suffering and Ross, I understand, you know, a kid's got to be able to touch a hot plate to know that's hot and they don't do that again, they get burned but they learn from that and I hear all of that. But I still think that's very, very minor compared to what we're going to share about the person of Jesus. Because I agree with Greg, you don't remove God from suffering. You involve him in your suffering. And I can't imagine people living their life without a God who witnesses their life. One of the saddest things I learned about radio is that so many people have no one to witness their life. That's why they ring in. That's why they listen to radio. So many people don't have anyone of significance to witness their life. And so many people don't have the most significant person, the God of the universe, to witness their life. And my plea is you don't handle the biggest question that humanity faces on your own. You do it with a witness. You do it with a friend. You do it with God. And why does God make a difference? Well, there's two things I want to focus on. The first one is the cross. We often talk about the cross and we talk about what Jesus did upon the cross for our sins if you're in a Christian content. But Hebrews 4 reminds us more than that. It reminds us that when we look at the life of Jesus and his death and passion on our behalf, we learn a significant thing about who our God is. He is not a God from a distance. He is a God who lived life like us. He's a God who went through our experiences. He's a God who understands our pain. He's a God who understands our situations. He's a God who identifies and relates. He's not impersonal spirit. He's not half a grain of sand on the beach. He's not my wish or desire. He is a God who is more than me, who is the creator of the universe, but still understands exactly how I experience life. He understands pain. He understands real suffering. He is the one who was whipped to the point of death. He was the one who was hung in the most cruel way to die upon a cross where you suffocate. That's why they hang you there. And you push yourself up to breathe and that's why they break your legs so you can no longer push yourself up. And they stuck a sword into him. He went through one of the cruelest, painful deaths you can imagine. He's also one who knows incredible emotional hurt. Sometimes we forget the incredible pain. All his friends abandoned him. They denied him. They left him. They rejected him. Their work colleagues, their family, whatever. He knew what it is to be abandoned by those he thought he was closest to. And as I said, I used to be a lawyer. And I think we sometimes forget that Jesus went through six illegal trials in 12 hours. 
And if you've ever been caught up in a legal process, you'll know that one of the most psychologically draining things is a legal process. Jesus knew the denial of basic human rights and human existence. So he not only suffered physically and emotionally, he suffered an extraordinary sense of denial of every form of human dignity. And this is the one, this is the one who says, I'm your witness. I'm your friend. I'm the one who walks with you. I'm the one you pray to. Why would you want to live life without that person? Or at least give it a shot. See if it works. Suck it and see. Why do it on your own? I was uh, speaking in a a particular place and about a year ago and when I walked in and uh, I wasn't really too sure what I was going to say they just had up on the wall that poem Footprints no matter how old we are it's an incredible poem you know it's it's just sort of lived on hasn't it and this guy has a dream if I remember correctly and in the dream he sees himself with Jesus and he sees two sets of footprints along the sand but every now and again there's only one set of footprints so he asked God, he asked Jesus, where were you when there's only one set of footprints? I mean, how come you left me alone? How come there's only one set? And the answer is, that is when I was carrying it. That is when I was carrying it. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of living life with the one who makes a difference. And the other aspect of the person of Jesus that I really respond to is the resurrection of Jesus. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we also find the incredible responses to our suffering and situation in the world. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen tells us that in Jesus, all our sins have been forgiven. If he's resurrected, every mistake we've made has been covered by his death and resurrection. And friends, look, I've got to tell you, some of the suffering that we have, some of the angst we have, we bring upon ourselves. All of us know that. By the words we said, the acts we did, the omissions we made, some of the things that happen in our life, we know we are in some sense directly responsible for. Or we know others that have been part of that process. And one of the incredible stories of the resurrection is that in Jesus, all of that can be forgiven. All of that pain and angst that we brought upon ourselves can be forgiven and restored. And why wouldn't we take that privilege? I had the opportunity of uh, interviewing a guy called Peter Jensen, who used to be the Archbishop of Sydney, and uh, Anglican Archbishop, that is. And uh, Peter was sharing with me on radio, it just came out of the blue that uh, one of the things he had to do when he finished up as archbishop was realise all the people that he had hurt, and somewhat unintentionally most of them, and those who had hurt him by actions and words and deeds. He had to seek forgiveness. And he you know, was looking for forgiveness as well for all of those situations that took place and believed that that suffering and angst that came to him and to others as a result of those words or actions could be forgiven because Jesus is risen. 
A couple of weeks later, I got a letter from a woman uh, in a retirement uh, centre. She was a chaplain retirement centre to say that she had been working with a, uh, a particular lady in the retirement centre who said that she had heard that interview with Peter on the air and that she hadn't spoken to her daughter for some time over something that she couldn't remember and the angst and whatever in the family was enormous. But she rang her daughter the next morning and they've just had a family barbecue with the first time for 10 years the family have been together renewed and dealing with the suffering and angst that those acts and deeds had dealt with. So one of the things about suffering we need to know that in the person of Jesus we can put things right and find forgiveness for parts that we've played. I think another thing that we need to remember in the resurrection of Jesus is that because Jesus is resurrected we read in verse 21 Corinthians 15 that means the whole of me will be resurrected as well. So Jesus didn't come back to life again as some sort of ghost being or some sort of you know spirit being. The whole of Jesus was raised up, changed, transformed, but it was the same Jesus. He ate fish. People could touch his hands. Jesus was raised up as a whole person. And the Christian message is, as it was for him, he is the first fruit, so it'll be for us. We will be raised up to be with Jesus and we'll be raised up to be like Jesus. But what that says for us in the here and now is that if God cares enough for me to raise me up as a whole being, the whole of Ross Clifford, yet changed, transformed, but the whole of Ross Clifford, the identity of Ross Clifford, goes to be with God forever and eternity, that means that God must be concerned about the whole of Ross Clifford now. He's not raising up a bit of Ross Clifford. He is raising, believe it or not, the whole of Ross Clifford mind, body and spirit to be with him forever because he is concerned about Ross Clifford. He's concerned about my fears of coming to speak here tonight. It's okay. I'm with you. Kel's going to give you a ring. If you want to jump out, you've got a replacement. You follow what I mean? He's concerned about what you face tomorrow. He's concerned about your pain and your suffering and my situation because the whole of me counts to God. There is no understanding of the world that offers you that. I've shared with some of you that one of America's greatest writers, John Updike, the author, um, wrote that the reason all of his characters resonate with his readers is because all of his characters have two traits in common. They're all radically imperfect but radically significant, radically valuable. I'm radically imperfect. That's why they're suffering. But I'm so radically valuable to God that he would come and live and die for me and raise up the whole of me. And when you get hold of that, I think you get hold of suffering. This God understands every aspect of my life. This God understands what it is to hurt, be betrayed, be denied, family, friends reject, legal systems abuse, restoration and forgiveness and this God knows that every aspect of my life counts and he will never leave me. He will never leave me. And then finally there's a message of hope, isn't there? Incredible message of hope because if this God 
in Jesus is raised up, then it shows that whatever happens for us in this life, you know, and when we talk about suffering, we talk about, in particular, our minds are drawn to children who suffer and, and children who die too early. And we, we read that children are unaccountable uh, with respect to their decisions in life. And as Greg Sheridan says, I mean, we hold on to that promise. And all of us do, that because of God's love and mercy, what those children have experienced in those brief years will be just multiplied in eternity. The sense of hope. I was talking to a woman uh, yesterday who was out at Morling for an engagement and uh, I married um, her and her husband. Uh, they're both surfers, very active surfers and uh, you would have thought they would have had a very strong uh, ongoing uh, life together in, in that capacity of surfing and, and ministry and work. He was a carpenter. But about 15 years ago, some infection came into his body, which they can identify but can't do anything about. And this very fit, active carpenter, minister, uh, Christian worker, basically hasn't been able to leave his bedroom or his house for that period of time. And she was saying to me, but Ross, you know, his hope is in the resurrection. His hope is in the resurrection. The risen Christ gives him strength for what he faces today. The risen Christ gives him purpose and opens up opportunities for minister, even in the situation that he's in today. But the risen Christ says to him that you will know an eternity that is way beyond the restrictions you have now. The resurrection brings him hope. Friends, if I'm going to talk about suffering, I'm not going to talk as someone who says, these are all the answers. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that uh, when we look at suffering, we can say, well, that's ticked, that's done, that's good, that's uh, done that one. Because it's a, it's a problem that just digs at us at different periods of our life and experience and friends and whatever. But what I can say confidently, and I think we need to remember this, this is a question for all humanity. This is a question that everybody asks. This is a question that everybody seeks to find solutions for. I can confidently say that the biblical understanding of suffering and pain and freedom and God's love is very consistent with an all-powerful and all-loving God. I can very confidently say, while not being disrespectful, that is the best understanding of evil and suffering and God that there is. I can also say that there's another side of suffering we must never forget, that we grow and we learn and we develop and God's hand is upon us. But in all of that angst, all of that angst, that may well satisfy at one point in our lives. But if you're deep in suffering at the moment, I hear that. What you have to hang on to is Jesus. You've just got to hang on to Jesus. Because he knows, he understands, he's been there, and in him there is only resurrection. No matter what, there's only resurrection. And whatever the loneliness, whatever the suffering, whatever the pain, he knows but he promises, promises there is only good. No one else offers that. No one else has proved it. 
No one else has verified it. Don't do it without him. Don't do it without him. In my life, the most valuable thing I've learned is that Jesus, that Jesus is the only thing that brings me ultimate significance. It's the only one that gets me through. Not because I'm weak. It's because in humanity I need him. God bless you. Thank you. Well, thanks for that, um, Ross. I mean, getting some questions, and uh, this next uh, next half hour is going to be going to be really good. But good luck to you, Ross. <laughs> good luck, is it? Yeah, good luck. All right. So we've had a, a few major themes that have come through, um, and I'll, I'll start with this one. And there's a there's a few little questions that will probably go with this. Yeah. Uh, but it's to do with, with frameworks, I suppose, of, um, of what God does control. Um, so I'll read the first one. Um, I get that God created freedom. I also understand that he can redeem suffering, i.e. build character. Why is the evil so bad? Why does a loving God create such, um, such evil or such darkness, such sadness? Yeah, um, thanks for that. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's how the world feels, doesn't it? I mean, I've just come back from a week in Hawaii, and um, it's been a good week. But I went over there in a fairly emotionally drained kind of situation. So I, I think I'd always say we need to keep things in perspective and understand that our sense of the world at one particular time is not necessarily the reality of how the world is. And we need to go out and smell the flowers and look at the sunset and get a perspective of God's provision and care and greatness. But having said that, I think what that question is identifying is the immensity of evil that we should not dismiss in our world. And sometimes that evil is in places and at times that just overwhelms all the goodness. And can I, can I illustrate this by probably one thing I've shared at Jural before, but I, I encourage you to, to Google George Gittos. And George Gittos is, some of you would know, one of Australia's, well, he's Australia's leading wartime photographer and one of our best known artists. And he was in Rwanda. And Rwanda's evil. I mean, where do you find God in Rwanda? And I'm in the time of the... Yeah. And tribe against tribe and thousands being killed. And he's there with the Australian United Nations medical team. And they're trying to do this good in the immensity of evil. And the village they're in, they're hearing another village is coming in to wipe them out. You wipe out thousands of people. So all they can do as a medical team is to leave and hopefully come back and patch up who's left. So they're getting and ready to leave. And as they're leaving and going, and George Giddos is going with them, a man stands up in the crowd of all this evil and opens up the New Testament. And Rwandan, broken, in Rwandan and broken English, starts reading how there's hope, how there's delivery and restoration in Jesus. And as he's saying, as he's leaving and they're leaving and they can't offer them anything, this man is offering them hope. 
And he said, I kind of understood what religion is now all about. I could offer them nothing. He offered them hope. And he took a photo of the guy, and I have the you know, copy of the photo. We don't know what happened to him. He was probably massacred. And he painted that photo, and that, photo, that painting won the Blake Prize for Religious Art. It's called The Preacher. So in all of that angst, which I understand that, an observer who's trying to do good saw that the message of Jesus and the gospel was the only thing that could bring good in that darkness. The only thing that could bring good in that darkness. I'll, I'll press into that a bit more because we've had a, a I thought theme, you might, yeah. yep, a theme, uh, fair few questions in it. In terms of, of that darkness and the magnitude of that darkness, where did that originally come from? Well, and uh, I, I'm surprised if you read Greg Sher- Sheridan's book. I mean, he's a secular journalist. Um, God is good for you. I'm surprised that in that kind of book, Greg picks up, you can't deny the place of the devil and evil. It's part of that process. I mean, that's part of that Christian worldview, that in that freedom... There were created beings, angelic beings, which, of course, new spirituality is very open to. They're very open up to angels, and they understand there's a dark side of the angelic force as well. So this is just not a Christian perception, or Islam and many of the world religions would say the same. So this this is a good thing to be discussing today. But in that dark side, their freedom, their response, their rejection of God was immense and produced evil, and uh, that evil... Uh, does play out and the book of Revelation actually talks about how people who are people of faith actually become subjected to that evil. So I don't think we can dismiss that although it's only, you know, it's not only our actions and our consequences, it's what the forces of evil do with those. And those forces of evil were angels and whatever were created with that same freedom that took those same choices and uh, a part of that immensity. Now, could have God created a world without all of that? And yeah, good. yeah, he could have. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, he could have. He could have. He could have created a world without all of that. He could have created the world like heaven. He could have done that. But would have we actually even explored what it was to be loved and to be people of freedom and choice? No. So most philosophers say, yeah, he could have created that, but it's quite consistent for him not to have created that, particularly if he really valued freedom and choice as part of that process, even though there were consequences. And I, I you know, I'm not God, but all I can say to you, well, that's evident, but all I can say to you is that the world he created is totally consistent with a God of love and a God of creating a world where people have choice. He could have created heaven but you and I would have been there without any choice. Yeah, I suppose we throw that word freedom around a lot and the way you're looking at that, there's a, there's a huge depth and a huge cost to that freedom. There's a huge cost. Mm. And uh, that's the way the world was created. Within that framework of freedom and choice, this is obviously a hugely contested theological um, mm. idea of, of choice versus freedom. Yeah. And there's this clear Old Testament and, and New Testament examples where God, in His sovereignty, um, at times there are, you know, for example, Judas's destiny was to betray Jesus. Um, so how, and, and maybe you can help just paint a picture of the two sides, or I guess the the question that came in was looking at your text Roman eight, Romans eight mm. um, about um, God um, who foreknew, uh, He also predestined in, in the image of the Son. Um, and so their question was, do we have a choice or are we chosen? And that kind of, obviously we're not going to spend another hour into it. No. 
But how would you? Didn't you do this in theology, ever? Uh, I did, and I'm not going there. No, you're not going there. Under you, so you know. Look, uh, I've got to say, and and this is something about me, and 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 I'll do this as briefly as I can. Um, I fear at times we we think we can give all the answers to things. We think we're kind of, you know, can give all the godlike. I can't do that. What I would say to you is, I believe the Bible holds two pictures. And that is that God is sovereign and also I'm a person of human responsibility. And he holds those two out there. Now, in my human understanding, I struggle to reconcile those two. But in God's understanding, he doesn't. And he wants me to know that he is a sovereign God and he wants me to know as well that I'm humanly responsible. And constantly throughout Scripture, those dual aspects, those tensions are presented. So at times I find great comfort in the sovereignty of God, that whatever is happening to him is part of his sovereignty. At other times I find great accountability in the fact that I'm also accountable for my actions and what that means. So I prefer to hold those two together. So in some sense, I hold that, yes, uh, God foreknew and knew where Judas was going and what was happening with Judas, but that in no way dismisses Judas' accountability for who he was as a person. I hold those two together as a tension. Now, that may not be your theological pattern. Can I say, though, with suffering and evil, what we need to hear with respect to the understanding of suffering and evil, whatever your theological position is or your understanding of the Bible... What has basically happened in the world of academia, they've accepted that understanding of God creating a universe as a loving God, giving people freedom, as totally consistent with God being powerful and loving. So that kind of objection against God is fairly well diminished today. It's seen to be consistent with, you know, whether I'd create that world that way is another matter, but God... Creating a world of freedom, but also God is all-powerful and loving, is not inconsistent in any way. And I think that's very consistent with the biblical data. No. <laughs> um, the questions are flying in, so I really I apologise because we're not going to get to all of them. Um, keep them coming because I'm, I'm filtering them through. This one, I think, is a, is a really honest question, and we've, we've touched on a little bit, but... Um, I think, um, yeah, I think it's a really good one because I think it sums up um, a lot of people's struggle. How do you know that God is loving? What proof is there that affirms that God is actively caring for each and every one of us? Having a few stories that and happily doesn't prove anything, how do you explain the rest of the millions of people who die suffering? Look, I, I do explain it from my own experience. And understand, I explain it from my own stories because in periods of doubt, I mean, I at one stage used to carry around in my wallet, I don't like the rest of you, stories about when I knew God was good. Just so I could remind myself when I wasn't going that well. I could pull that out and remind those stories. But again, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, it is a story which some of you might have heard. When, when a woman wrote to me asking for a copy of my book, Resurrection Fact or Fiction, and she said, I needed it because my husband has dementia. He's had it for some time. He's only 60, or in his 60s. I visit my husband 
two or three times a week. It takes me an hour and a half to get there by public transport. He hasn't known who I am for, for months. And I was out there the other day and the medical team said they thought they were doing me a favour. Your husband is so well, good news, you could live for another 20 years. I was just totally destroyed. She said, Ross, they give me hugs at church. They tell me good stories. They're very caring. I just need to know it's true. How do I know God is loving? Because 2,000 years ago he rose from the dead. And no matter how I feel, I believe that truth to the point of death. 2,000 years he died upon a cross and rose from the dead. And why would he do that apart from the fact that he loved me? So if you want to get me away from the love of God, you've got to defeat the resurrection of Jesus. And that's, that's my foundation. That's where I settle. Whatever I'm feeling emotionally, that's where I fall back. Because, you know, I doubted that. Mm. I came to college. I doubted it. First six months of college, I was throwing Jesus out. Everything I was doing and reading, throwing him out. Then I had to really investigate that as a lawyer and whatever myself and came to the conviction that the, the biblical evidence, the other evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is just so overwhelming. Mm. I re-entered the faith. And that's how I know he's loving. I mean, in some, like many of you, I mean, I know what it has to be in the pits of life in the last 12 months and various experiences. But when that really gets me, I can't go anything, I'm just constantly reminded that this Jesus died and rose again for me. That's where I find my freedom. That's where I find my significance. They can't touch me. That's true. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's really good. I know, for, I know for me, you, you had one of the lines in here at the end, which was hang on to Jesus. Yeah. And I know for me and Amy, we, we went through about two and a half years where we were trying to fall pregnant and we couldn't fall pregnant. And it was really funny, like it was a time for us where um, the darkness just came over us and there was just this deep sadness where nothing made sense for us and God seemed really distant. We questioned his goodness. We questioned if he actually loved us or cared for us. And it's funny, I look back on that and I can see how we have built character and I can I look back on that with thankfulness that season mm. um, we are be- heaps better parents because of it but the thing that got me through that whole time was that that one line that you're talking about was holding on to Jesus for me it was holding on to the light um, and knowing that the light would, would overcome the darkness mm. and it was the only thing that made sense it was that yeah. really one simple truth and everything else in terms of Christianity everything else in terms of faith I couldn't read much scripture at all during that se- that yeah. season. Um, the only thing that made sense was that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's, and that's how I know God loves. I feel it, yeah. but I know the truth of that. Yeah, that's really good. In that, um, practically, how would you best minister to someone who has lost faith in God due to terrible suffering? Oh, well, um, and I experienced that. Uh, I as a pastor and and whatever I yeah I, I know that um, the best way is to listen and to hear and understand why uh, the worst thing is to jump in and give answers because you probably won't even get to the guts of what's really gone here I mean that young lady who came to me and fortunately you know because Ross can jump in I she she had time to unpack her story and she unpacked her story. And through unpacking that story, what 
so what I'd say here is all of those questions are really valuable and they will hit us at a variety of periods of time and we need to be able to talk that through as we've done tonight. But for the person you've described who've asked that question, it's the end where I focused is where I'm taking them. Because, you know, what other worldviews say and, and how, how I can get good out of this is not going to... I'm going to, I'm going to remind them that whatever they've been through, whatever their disappointment, um, this Jesus is worth hanging on to or rediscovering or holding on to. And I find in numerous conversations like that, look, I mightn't, they mightn't find the church again, they mightn't find all sorts of other things again, but that Jesus is still very attractive. So just there's been a, a lot of questions on this this idea of, of God's goodness. Practically, for a lot of people in terms of suffering, um, it's really hard to see God's goodness in yeah, all of this. Yeah, I agree. And practically, how do you help people? Like how would you um, encourage people to see the risen Jesus um, when they're in the midst of suffering? Well, I don't begin by saying, oh, look on the bright side. I mean, I just find that incredible. I mean, people turn up to people in pain and angst and say, well, you know, as we talked about here earlier, it's good to talk about that. But to say, well, see what God's... I mean, when you're in the midst of that, I mean, it doesn't happen. I'm just going to be there as a witness to their pain and suffering. That's what they need to know, that there is someone witnessing their life and is serious about their life. So, you know, personally... Um, the former principal, the principal I placed at uh, at uh, Morling some 20 odd years ago, and a good mate, is not well, is seriously not well. And I haven't been able to get to him, to see him, even though I'm getting SMSs from his family. I was going before I went to Hawaii, but I got sick, and everyone said, you can't go in the hospital sick. I went to Hawaii and didn't see him. I got a full calendar, I got an email today about him not being well. I got a full calendar today and tomorrow and Saturday. And I'm thinking, oh, how can I get to him next week? And I'm saying to Beverly, my wife, you know, I don't know. And she, just before I left, she said, Ross, no, you're going tomorrow. Does that make sense? You've got to be there. You've just got to be with them. Just stand with them. Hold their hand. Listen to them. But in that process, if you do get the opportunity, you've got to remind them that in that situation that they're in this is not the one they let go of this is the one that ministers to them and reaches out to them now after that process might well come the other questions we started off earlier what what happens is you'll what i try to do in the presentation is one form that is you know i try and look at the biblical and worldview approach and the other one that's trying to look at the pastoral approach as well and people tend to enter from one or the other, depending where they are. But it doesn't mean that we don't have both experiences. But don't give them the first if they're where you're describing. They just need to know that Jesus loves them. And that makes sense. It's, you know, and if they're thinking, well, does he really? Then remind them of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. But it's being with people that ultimately that lives itself out. So Vic, I'm coming tomorrow. You know, we can get so waylaid by all sorts of other stuff that the person who needs us most, we're doing other stuff. Does that make sense? 
And so this is not an academic debate. Think around your neighbourhood and others and friends and people that you know are not going well today and whatever you've got on tomorrow, do a vic. Take them something. Go and see them. Give them a hug. That leads into another realm of, of questions. Um, and you have a particular passion about the cross and the resurrection. We're now living on this side of it, but we are also awaiting the second coming of mm. Jesus. So we're in this space where we're asking this question. We're looking at how to address suffering. We're looking at how to be present, how to look at God's goodness to, to stand by suffering. And I guess uh, a lot of people often have questions around Satan and the cross was victorious, Satan was defeated, but we're in this tension now where Satan still, and, and the, the demonic, uh, there is still other players in this battle. And so I guess you talked about our responsibility and you've just shared a little bit about our responsibility relationally to, to be the light in the darkness. So I guess the question um, that I, I think will be helpful for us as we kind of begin to land tonight is, yeah, how do we engage with the understanding of what power does Satan have um, now and and what power do we have um, through the resurrection and what responsibility do we have um, mm. to deal with these mm. issues? Oh, uh, yeah, and, um, yeah, I... Yeah. I mean, my confidence is in, in the person of Jesus and his death and resurrection, so... I, I want to rebuke any evil in my life or anybody else's life. But, Andrew, it's real. And if you're discerning, you know it, and you see it, and you understand it. And sometimes you've just got to walk with it, hitting away at you for a season. But don't dismiss the reality of that. I mean... I, I don't know if you guys or many of us know what we call the excluded middle. I mean, in the Western world, we tend to live with God up here and ourselves down here. But what's happening in new spirituality and other Eastern religions, they don't buy that, nor should they. There's not only God up here and us down there. There's this spiritual realm out there. They know it. There's more belief in angels out there than within the church. They know that world exists. So don't be ashamed of it. I mean, I'll go on radio and talk about what happens with, you know, when you're astral travel and bad angels go with you. You know, that's when you leave your body and go out. That's why you shouldn't do it because bad angels... I can tell you story after story after people who've been associated with bad angels when they astral travelled. And I'll get people ringing up saying, oh, but Ross, I should have prayed for the good angels to go with them. So there's not a denial of that truth. So I just think we need to take that seriously. But I'm, I'm not one who believes that all, all struggles and, and all pain and angst in our life is directly related because there's a satanic attack going on. Some of it's our own responsibility. Others is just the world and the mess that we're in. And folks, we do die as a consequence of all that. But to deny the other. So you need really discerning leadership. You really need trained and equipped people who actually sensibly know what it is to take the reality of that truth, not overemphasize but not underemphasize it, and equip people to live with that. Because out there in the community and people here today who who may not be followers of Jesus. I mean, they know in their conversations, in their, in their world, this is not something that is denied. So I don't know if that's helpful. but I, I find that personally really helpful because I think sometimes we can put things just in the, oh, God allows suffering, and we actually can portray God um, absent or not present 
um, mm. because we're scared to talk about the evil or the, uh, the, the demonic or Satan's attack um, or just confront the actual part of suffering and we can jump to pointing to, to God's love um, or, or we, it's just hard to engage. So I, I find that helpful that people actually want to engage with the darkness and with the struggles and with the battles that are going on and there's many different players in this war that we're in. Yeah, and I've asked people, I've had people ask me to pray for them because even though they weren't church followers, they had a sense that they were caught up in that themselves, let alone Christians. Um, so I think, yeah, but um, it's it's the other side of pain and suffering. That's why I mentioned it tonight, and I really found it interesting that Greg Sheridan raises it up in that God is good for you. He's a secular journalist. I mean, how else do you explain what goes on in our world and the immensity of evil? I mean, it's just enormous. I'm going to finish with this question, and I realise there's been a lot flooding through. And we've we've touched on it, but this question is going over and over. Um, and this person says that Jesus knows our suffering, knows and comforts our suffering is crucial and comforting, um, but... Why does God allow no choice, evil, and suffering? And I suppose we, we've we've hit that a lot tonight. Um, but the question that has been coming in constantly is why does why does God allow these things to happen when um, when we haven't caused them? I suppose um, why does God allow a tsunami or a natural disaster to take down a, a village um, when and and we are yeah why why is that? What does that actually happen? Yeah, and look, I don't pretend or want to pretend to have all the answers to that. All I'm saying is that the understanding of the world is that when we made those choices, everything collapsed. And and sometimes we just think micro, but in God's world, it's micro and macro. How we play out impacts the whole cosmos. Everything gets involved and that whole process gets corrupted. And I think in all of that, we still got to remember that, you know, the aid agencies and so many that are going in to minister there, I mean, so many of them have the hand of God upon them, seeking to rectify what happened as a consequence. And I like what Greg Sheridan does say, that in the end, you remove God, you've still got all the questions, but you've got no hope. You've got no hope. Where does that leave you? Um so I I can philosophically answer that as I think I have but yeah I understand the depth of that question I mean I was just in a why and hurricane lane was becoming that got diverted and I saw what all that was doing to people I mean how's that a consequence for the sin that you and I have committed how does it get to that immensity I mean I understand that question all I can say is in in the world in which we are, in the realm in which we are, that is the immensity of sin. That is the consequence. That is the corruption of everything that is good. But God is still there seeking to restore it all. Agencies of good involving people of good and all of that process, reaching out and saying, you know, I will rectify all of it, but in the time that you have, smell the roses, minister for me, and be a person who hangs on to me. I mean... It's really good. Um, there's a lot of good questions we haven't answered tonight and a lot of really challenging ones. Um, what what ways would you encourage us as a community to explore um, this topic more? What avenues um, have you found really helpful? What books 
You've mentioned Greg Sheridan's one tonight. But what for people who are really wrestling with this topic and um, and for the for people who haven't really had their questions answered, um, how yeah, how would you help people explore this topic going forward? Well, I think there's a number of things you could do. I mean, if you like the old classics of stuff that C.S. Lewis wrote on the problem of pain and other things, and then if you know C.S. Lewis, he's the, the great Christian thinker and whatever, and, and when his wife died, he married late in life, many of you will remember that... Um, People tried to comfort him and say, well, you know, God's good. And that's, that's not good enough. Those answers aren't good enough. And so he ended up writing in the end, he's dealing with this and, and the response. So you've got books like that from people who have been through those processes. Um, and so, you know, C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. Um, I, think, I think you, as you said, you look at someone like what Greg Sheridan's offering. Uh, you Google people like uh, Ravi Zachariah. Who are, you know, on YouTube and elsewhere who are trying to address this issue, get a, a different understanding of how they're trying to explain it and deal with it. Uh, you look at all those kind of processes. But can I say to you, it's not going to alter much from what we said tonight. I mean, there's not, you know, there might be deeper spins or other spins, but that's pretty well how it comes. Um, I think if anything, I'd do more than what some of the others would do is the end total focus on Jesus. Um, so I think it's something we really in the end need to work through, consider, look at. But I still think the best help for people is to take this question seriously, is to hear it, is to seek to address it pastorally or from the other, depending on where they're coming from, and to be as you are, to be agents of healing in the community. We need to be agents of healing in the community. We need to be people where people find healing and compassion and restoration and forgiveness. And the agents of healing must go with any apologetic or answer to suffering. And um, if I was... um, ministering in a church today I, I couldn't do it if we weren't agents of healing I mean I just you know people are hurting this is a hurting world this is a world that's really struggling in many areas of life and uh, their problem's not Jesus they're just not sure you know, we're there <laughs> Thanks so much, Ross. Let's give him a, another thank you. And feel free to contact me, uh, particularly, particularly, I mean, contact these two guys and Pete at the back about this whole thing. But particularly if you think I could help you in any way, if you're working through the issue, then you feel free uh, to contact me because um, if I can help in any way with a coffee or spending time with you or whatever, if this is something that's real for you or somewhere in your family, I'm more than happy to do that and uh, delighted to do that um, if I can. And, and can I say um, if anybody would like prayer or any situation, and I'm, I'm sure all of us here tonight are more than that. This is not an academic exercise. Um, I'm not here to do that. Um, so, you know, if that's what people would like, I'm more than happy to pray for people as well. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank, thank you for, for that, Ross. Well, we, we will, we might, could you pray for all yeah. us as a room tonight? But yeah, we, we'll stay around and then there'll be people available to pray. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks, Ross. Yeah, take the lead. I mean, it really, and I don't want to whatever, but really good hope you hold onto somebody. I mean, can you take someone's hand or something? Oh, Father, sometimes it's just, just so hard to know that you're a God of compassion and mercy. People, you know, Lord, you just, you know better than we do the angst and the hurt and the pain, the desperation at times we feel for ourselves and our friends and our family. We, we see much joy. We thank you for the goodness of life. Father, we thank you. Your word does give us explanations of why this takes place and we acknowledge our own responsibility for it. And all of us confess the parts we've played. But Father, let us hold on to Jesus. And Father, for those of us tonight that know emotional or physical or other pain that's in their life or in their family's life, I would ask that the Holy Spirit would just come into their being and their hearts and their minds and just remind them of your great love. Just allow them to reach out and hang on to Jesus, to know that in his death he understands every aspect of our journey and in his resurrection he is empowering and liberating and promising only resurrection. Father, I ask for freedom tonight to acknowledge our pain. For those of us who need space, give us space to deal with that pain. And Father, I ask that the risen Christ would be with each of us, that you would carry us where we need to be carried. And Lord, there are people here tonight that are in that situation, people here tonight that are emotionally and otherwise absolutely drained. Holy Spirit, be with them and liberate them. And help us as a church to be those agents of healing. Lead us to people in our community and ministries in our community that need us to minister and to reach out. And for Pete and Andrew and for Luke and for all the team, all the leaders, everybody involved in this church, may they be your lights in a world that seeks the risen Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name.